White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 509. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started, all engines are started. We have ignition, 2, 1, 0, we have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. The second five is moving off the tail. It is now clear to the tower. Hello and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment, along with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I'm excited tonight to get to talk about Ready Player Two, the brand new novel, obviously sequel to Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. And joining me to talk about that book is longtime co-host and partner on this uh, venture, John Ringer. Welcome aboard, John. Thanks for having me, Van. Excited to be here. So you and I have done a couple of podcasts about both the book. I feel like we did two maybe about the book, and then we did, or maybe somewhere along the line, and we did one about the movie, Ready Player One. So it seemed natural we needed to come back and talk about Ready Player Two. This is certainly one of the most eagerly anticipated um, books certainly of the year, probably of the last several years for me. I'm sure you were looking forward to it too. And so I'm glad you could come aboard so that we can kind of break it down a little bit. I'm excited to talk about it. I was looking forward to it. Yeah. I So our, I guess our, our basic plan tonight is that we'll do a little non-spoilery introduction stuff so that people that are that just stumble onto this show or that just want to know, should I read it or not, but don't ruin it for me, they can listen to the first few minutes, and then we'll give a spoiler warning. We'll make a, as we always do, we'll make a very clear spoiler warning, and then we're going to kind of get in and dig around the details. So if you haven't read the book and you're considering it, just hang around for the next couple of minutes, and John and I will give you just a very vague sense of, you know, what our overall thoughts were, and if you should read it or not. So, um... I did notice it's been number one on the New York Times bestseller list for a couple of weeks now, which doesn't surprise me because there are a lot of people looking forward to it like us. Not everybody hates it, just the people apparently that have columns and YouTube channels um, and other podcasts. But um, also I saw that it brought volume one back on the top 10 bestsellers. He's got to just be having like a license to print money at this time, at this point, doesn't he? Absolutely. Both of these. Oh, both of these on the top 10 New York Times bestsellers at the same time. And it's not like the first one hasn't been selling steadily for the last nine years, you know? I mean, it's it's always in stock at Barnes & Noble. It's always out on their table where, you know, they buy two, get one free kind of thing and all that. It's always out there. And when the movie came out, I remember seeing it back up on the front stands again. So how many millions of copies must that first book have sold? You know, it, it really, and, and I, I think deservedly so. That's one thing I think we should state up front is that you and I really like the first book, right? Yes. So very much. I see. I have an issue, and that issue is that there are a whole lot of people out there that hate and despise the first book, hated the movie, and were looking, just waiting to tear into this book and say bad things about it. And some of them maybe even actually read it first. 
Though I don't think a lot of them did. I think a lot of people that criticized the first one didn't actually read it. Because the criticisms I always see for the first one, and some of what I'm seeing for the second one a little bit, though I haven't really gone out and read a lot of reviews of the second one, I didn't want to be tainted by it, because um, I expected that. But a lot of the reviews and criticisms I heard about the first book, to me, never seemed fair and valid. They always seemed like people had a chip on their shoulder, an agenda against the book, and they they dumbed down and simplified it, and they tried to make... This is the one that really killed me. It seemed like a lot of critics try... It, you know, it's written in first person. Both books are written in first person. Like, I did this, I did that. But that's from the point of view of the character, Wade Watts. But it seemed like a lot of readers wanted to act like that was Ernest Klein saying those things. And I mean, like, if I wrote a... if you know, Well, let me put it this way. My first novel that's in first person was Lucian Dark God's Homecoming. And he's basically the devil. That's not me. You know? <laughs> n- n- no, nobody that reads Lucian emails me and says, wow, man, you're horrible. You're just the worst person ever. You're that's, a dark a, person, man. Yes. It's a story, and that's the main character. And, you know, you, for a character to... You know, I just quoted this on Facebook yesterday that Roger Zelazny has a famous quote where he basically says... There's no point in writing a story if the main character doesn't change. If the main character goes through a bunch of adventures and comes out exactly the same on the other end, then what was the point of even doing it? And so, you know, it's not that person. You're writing a character that starts out one way and then learns something and survives, hopefully, and advances, you know, and becomes somebody else. So I have a chip on my shoulder against the people that have a chip on their shoulder against this book. (laughs) against both of these books, because it seems like they just pull their their justification for it out of their butt. Of course, the other thing they always say, they always say, uh, it's just a lit, it's a book of lists. I'm like, it's got a great plot. It's got great characters. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's not like he's saying, here are my 10 favorite video games from 1983. No, it doesn't do that at all. Am, am I completely off base here? No, you're not completely off base. The, I mean, every book isn't for everybody, right? Right. And... This book appeals to certain people, and I think honestly, like we fall in the target audience for the for the first book. Yeah. Okay. We're it. You know. That's true. Uh, you know, people that were nerds that grew up in the 1980s. You know, when we were teenagers and, and young adults. I mean, that's when we absorbed a lot of popular culture. That's the wheelhouse for this book. And if you didn't grow up then, or that's not you, then a lot of the stuff is going to go by you and it's not going to mean anything to you. So, and it just, I guess, turns into, it degrades into lists or whatever for them. But yes. I, yeah, I mean, but, but I honestly feel like he did a better job of writing a good story with interesting characters, even than just it appeals to some people and doesn't appeal to others. I think they're overlooking sure. the quality. Yeah. No, I, I think the first book is a creative idea with good characters and, and they do grow and go somewhere. Um, and I think, but I, and I think he, he came up with uh, creative ideas to about kind of the, in the same way that I like some other science fiction books like Dune and other things about creative ideas about the future of humankind and where some things were going and use that kind of lens of science fiction to pair with the 1980 stuff to make it entertaining and, and write a creative story. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it wouldn't have sold millions and millions of copies if it was just, hey, we're going to play this game. Hey, remember that movie? That was, cool. you know. In other words, if this was just, if this was just Chris Farley going, hey, remember that game? That was cool. Hey, remember that movie? That was cool. It's not 
But that's what they act like. And it drives me nuts because, again, I don't mind criticism of my own stuff or other people's stuff that I like if it's valid and legitimate. But when you just make up something illegitimate and try to paint that paint it with that brush, that ticks me off <laughs> no matter who it is, you know. You know, I'm ready to fight <laughs> when when people say stuff like that. It makes me angry. So, well, we we both love the first book. Uh, remind everybody because I'm trying to think too. It's been a while since we talked about it. What did you think about the movie? And of course, you've had some time. I think that movie benefits from from time, from being a little bit away from the book. So, how where where are you with the movie now? I I enjoyed the movie. I I mean, I'm a book person always. I think there's almost never a case where the book is better than the movie. So I enjoy the book more than the movie, but I enjoyed the movie. I, I don't think it was the greatest thing I've ever seen, but I think it was fun and it took the, the source material and did something uh, entertaining with it. Yeah. It's funny. If you go back and dig through our archives here, uh, back to early, like probably March or April of 2018, you can find the episode that you and I did about the movie. And at that time, the thing that was really fresh in both of our minds was, oh, they changed this, they changed that. But but I think that when you get a little distance, right, when you let the movie kind of percolate in your mind on its own for a while, over a period of like, you know, more than two, almost, almost three years now, mm-hmm. um, you start to see the merits of the movie that the book doesn't have. And I, I've kind of landed in the last year or two, I've landed on the position that there are a lot of things the book does that the movie doesn't do that the book is better. But there's a lot of things that the movie does that the book doesn't do that are better. And there are things that work better as a book and things that work better as a movie. And so I think they're both really, really good in their own medium. I'd agree with that. And, um, And it's actually become my third favorite. When I rank my movies, it's my third favorite movie ever. Mira and I saw it in the theater five times. I saw it six times. I went once just to make sure it was okay. And then I took her five more times, and it was her favorite movie for a while until the the Spider-Man animated thing came on and it became number one. But um, she and I just rewatched it again last week. We watched it right before the book came out, to, or either right after the book came out, just because it got us excited about it again. So we've probably, between home video, we've got the 4K you know, Blu-ray and everything, we've probably watched this movie 12 times. So we love it. Um, so how excited were you for the sequel? I was excited. Again, there's a, you know, it's this time of year when a lot of good stuff comes out uh, publishing wise. And I had this on my list that I, you know, wanted to get it, read it this month as soon as it came out. So I, I was ready. Um, I was looking forward to it. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, again, I enjoy books. So I look, you know, early in the year, I look out and go, okay, what's coming up this month and this month and this month, that, you know, kind of looking ahead. And I saw November and Ready Player Two coming out. And I said, I'm, I'm circling that. I'm going to read that in November when it comes out. So I was excited. I, I mean, again, I love Ready Player One, the book. And so when Ready Player Two came in, I, I I wasn't sure we needed a sequel. <laughs> so I had a little bit of trepidation there. You get that. So, yeah. Um, and, but I mean, I enjoyed the book. So I was going to read, I was definitely going to read this one. And well, we'll get into that, the, that trepidation about, and did we need it um, in a minute? But, um, yeah, it's funny because you and I both like Michael Connolly's crime novels as well, and mm-hmm. there and and I especially like the Lincoln Lawyer. Mickey Haller is my favorite Connolly character and my favorite books, Lincoln Lawyer books. And there was one that came out exactly two weeks before this, 
And so I knew that when this book came out, I would be reading this book. So I'm like, all right, I've got two weeks to get that <laughs> to get that Connolly book read. And so I actually went up and got him to sell it to me a couple of days early and got a jump start on it because I needed to get through Connolly to get to get ready for this. So like two of my most anticipated books of the entire year came out within two weeks of each other. That that's just not a that's not good planning on the part of <laughs> they should have checked with me first before they <laughs> scheduled it like they, that. Yeah. I could have said so you'd People would buy it for gifts. Oh Christmas. man, yeah, that, that's it. That you schedule stuff in 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 November. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so people can give it for. I bet there are a bunch of people that are going to be getting this for Christmas, and so they're listening to this part because they don't want to get spoiled. They just want to know if it's going to be worth reading when they get it under the tree. So let's get to that, and then we'll do our spoiler. We're going to do our spoilers in just a second. But before the spoiler alert goes off, I want to give people who haven't read it yet and just want to kind of know in general, right? In general. Should they read it or should they not? And we'll, we're going to give our specific like one out of 10 or five star or whatever ratings at the very end of this episode. But before we sound the spoiler alarm, what's your kind of thumbs up, thumbs down in general? I mean, again, if you enjoyed the first book, you should read it. Yeah. I mean, I would say that. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's, that's my simple answer for those people without spoiling anything or doing my overall review about that. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that it, it, it you won't you'd rather read it than not. I don't think anybody is saying it's better than the first one. Um, and there's a lot of people that hate both of them, so I discount them immediately. But I would say you don't want to not read it. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Very fair. All right. Let's. Boop, boop, boop. Aouga, aouga. <laughs> I don't have the soundboard from our football. Warning, Will Robinson. Warning. Yeah. Well. Danger. Um, speaking of young guys who co-starred in science fiction shows, Will Robinson, we have the great Will Wheaton back doing the, uh, the audio book of this. And I was like, I was going to say it wouldn't have been the same without Will Wheaton. I'm so glad because he just made the audio book. I've probably listened to the audio book of the first of the first book 10 times. And it's just such a pleasure to just sit back, drive around or whatever, and have Will Wheaton reading that book to you because he performs it so great. And I was like, oh, I hope that they're able to get him back for this one because, you know, it's just like with Connolly, you've got uh, Titus Welliver who plays Bosch doing the readings of the Bosch books now. And it's perfect, you know, it's perfect. It's the same mm -hmm. thing here, having Will Wheaton do the readings of this. He, Will Wheaton's kind of made his own, like, I think that, I think that Ready Player One maybe was his first or one of his first where he did that. And it's given him a cachet like he does all the um, John Scalzi books, too, now mm -hmm. and does yep. a good job. And it's funny. I mentioned that on Twitter or Facebook or something, and somebody that didn't know that said, oh, yeah, right, I'm looking for the joke here. I'm like, there is no joke. Will Wheaton does these audiobooks, and he's fantastic. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I had to go out and get that. So, yeah, mm -hmm. so so get the audiobook if you if you like that sort of thing, too, because he does his, he does a great job with it. All right, so spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Let's get into some actual... In the nitty-gritty of Ready Player Two, we were going to talk about what did you think. Well, I think we both said you need to read it, but and, I, and let's roll into that sort of expectations going in versus what we actually got. What, what, what did you think about this book in terms of what you hoped it would be versus what it is? Well, again, I was very... <laughs> didn't think we needed a sequel after the first <laughs> book, right? I was very much in the camp, but that was it. Yeah, we don't like it, he tied it up with a bow. I don't need any more. Don't go back there. <laughs> uh, I've been. Mean, I it didn't mean I didn't love the first book, but I felt like it was this. He told the story. Yeah, 
And so when they said they were doing a sequel, I was a little concerned because I didn't know where you could go. Right. And that concerned Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So, um, that's kind of the way I felt after the first star Wars movie. I'm like, okay, (laughs) we blew up the death star. Darth Vader flew off into space, spinning around head over heels. Everybody gets a medal. Let's go home. We're good. You know? And I really, until the Mandalorian, I was pretty much good with that. So I get it. I get that. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, well, here, here's what I thought. I, I, I've been calling this book a no-win scenario, right? A no-win situation for Ernest Klein. Here's what I mean by that. You know, when the book first came out, there were people that read it and loved it. There were a few people that didn't like it, and everybody else ignored it. So it was all happiness and puppy dogs and rainbows and awards and bestsellers, and everybody was talking about how great it was. Three or four years passed, and I started to notice the naysayers creeping up, getting louder than the people. It's like the people that loved it said, yay, and had a a party and then went home. And then all the disgruntled grouches hung around out in the alley and are starting to go, that book sucked. That was, it treated women badly. Oh, it, you know, the the character is a jerk. Well, this is that and the other, you know, it. And, and, and they kind of took over the narrative of it. They kind of took over the, um, the public perception of it mm-hmm. there. And so I'm like, all right, so Klein puts out a sequel. What's going to happen? Half the people that are now paying attention will just immediately dismiss it out of hand and hate it, right? Just the fact that he wrote a sequel, they're dismissing it out of hand. That leaves him half. Okay, of that half... Half of them want it to be something other than what it's going to be. So they're going to be disappointed. Yeah. Um, so they're gone. Now you're down to 25%. Of that 25%, a certain percent aren't, a percent aren't going to like the ending or they, they wish it had done a different way or you know they'll have other critiques. You're down to a very small percentage of people by the time you get to people that are happy with everything about it. So it's like, other than making money or wanting to tell more of his story, both of which are perfectly legitimate reasons to write another book, um, he, I just didn't think he had a... It, it's not that I didn't want another one. I did. I just didn't know that he had enough incentive to do it. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I think that was very well said. And I think the incentive... I'm sure the publishing company was like, hey... yeah. Here's a big giant cardboard check with a bunch of zeros on it. If you write the second book, we'll give you this in eight bit graphics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it was, I mean, again, I'm not normally so cynical about these things, but I think that was this. I, I mean, this is my opinion. Like, I don't think he had a, I don't think he was dying to tell a, a, a second story. It was burning out of him. Yeah. I think it was more about the, and I'm sure there were fans that were like, "Hey, I want to hear more about these characters I love so much." And there was some of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right about the no-win scenario in terms of he wasn't going to make people happy, right? Regardless of what it here. I so. I just had a vision, by the way. I got to tell you, <laughs> when the publisher paid him for this, I, I wish they paid him in gold coins and had him hanging from the ceiling of their office, and he has to jump up and grab them. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, your paycheck is in this room, but this room is at the other end of a maze. You got to find your way through this maze to get to your paycheck. Oh, that I would like be it. great. Um, and, and you have to do a perfect score on Galaga first. I'm sorry. You don't get the paycheck if you don't get a perfect score on Galaga. <laughs> um, okay. So differences. You want to talk about the first one versus the second one. There's, 
it, the structure is similar, right? I mean, let, let me let me kind of lay out a couple of things here, and then you throw in. So the structure is similar in that we get, hi, I'm Wade. Here is my current situation. Here is the environment in which I currently am living. And then, oh, look, here's the thing I'm trying to do. And here are some challenges I have to overcome. And here is my relationship with the other main characters that I'm having to kind of either get along with or not get along with. And at some point, I have to win you know, or lose and, uh, and solve the, solve the puzzles. So the structure is, is similar. I've, I saw that I saw one reviewer. I just, I haven't even looked at reviews, but right before we went on the air, I looked at a couple and one person said it's the exact same plot. I'm like, it's not, it's not remotely the same plot. There's a lot different, but, but the structure is the same. So your thoughts about differences between this one and the first one. Yeah. I mean, the structure is the same and that there are, challenges in the virtual environment and challenges in the real world. And they have to overcome both of those things um, mm-hmm. simultaneously, just like in the first book. Um, you know, the starting point of where Wade is and what he has access to is different than at the f- start of the first book. Um, so that, yes, you know, that allows him to go in different directions than in the first book. But, um, you know, I think, I think that's the the biggest things. I think, I mean, you're right. The structure is very similar on the differences side. I think it's, you know, that he starts off as the richest man in the world and um, controlling the Oasis and, and being in a all powerful, invincible avatar inside the Oasis. And um, so that's a, you know, the other end of the universe and where he started the first book um, and be, you know, I, I kind of was, thinking that it might that this book might actually be and it may be if there's a third one maybe this is how it go i thought that this one might actually be set years in the future and now wade is is doing a contest and and the next generation coming up have to figure out wade's contest and again that might be where he goes with the third book i was kind of glad he didn't do that though because i did enjoy getting to spend some more time with the main characters the high five and everything you know kind of the they're they're more or less the same as they were at the end of the first book. They just they got more money and are able to do things, you know. But as yep. as it makes very clear about Wade, their personalities haven't changed that much, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But um, also the the other problem I had is this book took a while to get going. Both books have a long introduction where you find out here's you know here's Wade, here's the environment he's in, here's what he's doing, here's what the world is like, here's what the Oasis is like now. But in the first book, there was always this sense of discovery, like, oh, there's this school. You know, oh, he's, there's his friend. Oh, he, you know, he lives in the stacks. Oh, he's got to go out to this van underneath this pile of rubble, you know, to do it. Those were all like, even though it went on and on and on, there was always this sense of, oh, this is a new cool thing. Oh, this is a new cool, cool thing. Whereas in this, it's kind of like he just has to kind of do a dump. Well, you need to know that there's this thing. You need to know that there's this. You need to know that this is my relationship now. There's not that same sense of discovery. And, you know, when your main character is a, is a trillionaire or whatever, it, it does make it harder to challenge them. I, and I, I've said before that in my first heist novel, the, the criminals didn't have any money. And that was it was easy, you know, to challenge them. They want to get rich. Mm-hmm. In the second one, though, they've got some money now, and it was much more difficult because the question kept coming up in my mind: Why are they doing this if they already have money? So, you know, that's certain. That's probably a certain to a certain degree. What Klein had to deal with here was: 
how do you challenge the guy that's the richest, like you said, the richest man in the world with all this technology? So he had to come up with a whole new problem. And the problem in this one is more of a ticking clock, the world's going to end kind of thing rather than I don't want this guy to win the contest. You know, that yes. the, the stakes were relatively low in the first book, to be honest. We, we were rooting for Wade, but it wouldn't have been the end of the world if Sorrento had won. It would have just been a kind of a crappier same world. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So this one, at least the stakes are higher, right? Yeah. No, they're higher. Uh, there's a bunch of people's lives on the line and uh, in kind of the potential future of the Oasis itself. So yeah. they were higher and there was more of a, the, the time crunch urgency. I mean, the first book took place over a long period of time and yes. this book took place over, I mean, I don't even know a week. I mean, it was, I, it was very short, much so. more like the movie, much more like the, the movie yeah. took place over. Like it seemed like about three days. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it, this was much more like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, what's interesting is I liked, I actually kind of liked the fact that in the first one, they were trying to. They were basically just solving the puzzles at their leisure, and the mm-hmm. only urgency was, uh oh, Sorrento might figure it out first, or his team, you know, IOI. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this book, you've got like an hour left to solve the last two puzzles, or something, or else it's the end of the world. Yes. So there was more of an urgency to this one. Do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? I'm kind of divided on it. I, get, uh, I mean, I think it was a good thing just because I, it goes back to what we said in the beginning about how do you challenge that person, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why would Wade bother to do these things if they weren't if he wasn't put in that situation? Yeah, and, and like I say, I do like the idea that you have to get through those puzzles faster. You know, in other words, you can't spend months just sitting there in your little in your asteroid t- twiddling, you know, playing video games and occasionally looking at it and going huh, I wonder what that means, like they did in the first book. Here, it's kind of like, I've got to figure this out in the next five minutes, or it's game over for everybody. So that was pretty cool, I thought. Um, I I did want to note that at the beginning, when when Wade has the robes of Anorak, which makes him like, you know, God, basically, in the Oasis, I kind of wanted more of that. I, I, I do realize, I admit, that there's no challenge then. It's like being a in a computer game where you have infinite, it is literally being in a computer game where you have infinite lives and your gun can kill any character in the game. You know, it's basically like being Galactus in the Marvel universe and there's no ultimate nullifier, you know, and no Reed Richards. You can just eat any planet you want. If you don't, you know, if you don't like somebody, you just eat them, destroy them, you know, but still, that's cool. I, I want, you know, it's like we get two things, right? At the end of the first book, we see Wade zapping some IOI people. Just like he snaps his fingers and they turn red and die. And I enjoyed that very much. And in this book, he talks about how he abused his power. When people would criticize him online, he would hunt them down in the Oasis and, and, and obliterate them. And everybody knew it was him because who else could do that? And, and, that, was, and, and that's, that informs our understanding of how he's let ultimate power corrupt him, right? That's Again, yes. that's... Again, the reviewers are like, oh, see, he's a horrible character. I'm like, that's called changing the character. That's called plot. That's <laughs> Well, but I mean, he, you know, this is the other thing is he was a child, a, yes. you know, a teenage boy who had a really rough and isolated yes. upbringing. And he was, you know, 
destitute for a long time and and basically homeless and mm-hmm. you know almost an orphan and then an orphan and he so the I you know and so he wasn't the most powerful person he got picked on in school and crud all the time so the idea that he now is the most powerful person and people say mean things about him on social media whatever that he could go nuke them in the oasis I it, it makes sense to me I, I mean it didn't make like him as a character, but it yeah. made sense. Right, you know, it wasn't supposed to make us like him. That's the thing. People act like, that's what drives me crazy is these people act like we're, they act like we are looking, that like the book are looking at that and going, we're, you know, oh, that's supposed to be admirable. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's the bad side of him because he does, he's still learning. He has to learn to control himself and not be so sensitive and fly off the handle. But it's understandable, like you said, it's understandable he would be given his background. Dude, I guarantee you, when I was like, you know, 15, 16 years old in high school, if you'd given me the power to do what Wade has the power at the beginning of this book to do, I'd have done a whole lot of obliterating, John. <laughs> That'd have been obliterating left and right, man. Yeah. Um so yeah, I mean it it it's 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 realistic in a sense in a book that's utterly unrealistic. It makes it makes sense that the character would be that way. He's still they're like, well, clearly he didn't learn anything from the first book. I'm like, well, he learned some things, but he was starting from basically zero. He's gone from zero to like two on a scale of of zero to ten, you know, well-adjusted human being. So he starts this book at like two, but he's also starting this book being tempted by ultimate power. He's richer than God and got this, um, you know, got this oasis ability to blow away his enemies. Heck yeah, he's going to abuse it. It would have been unrealistic if he didn't do that at the beginning of this book. Whereas, exactly. Whereas some of the others like H and, and especially Artemis, they know they're a little better adjusted than him. They know to use their powers for good. And it's funny, too, because Wade probably could quote you chapter and verse of Peter Parker, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And yet when you even give, you know, Peter Parker that power, he let the, the burglar go by and kill Uncle Ben. You have to learn these things the hard way. And that's what that's what Wade does. So, OK. Um, but, yeah, I still wanted to see him nuke a few people more <laughs> before he had him taken away. I was like, oh, man, they took his. I knew they were going to take his powers away because it wouldn't have been a story otherwise. It was just obvious that they were going to, but it, it still disappointed me. Um, the, you know, we've talked about the movie. The movie did one thing really well that I think this book does, which is tie the challenges a little bit more to the relationships on the characters, right? The, the challenges that, that they had to overcome in the first book were really just kind of stuff that, um, that Halliday thought was cool when he was a kid. Whereas in the movie, they made a much more about Halliday and um, what's her name? The girl, Kira, that they, Kira and, and Og. And I thought that was a major improvement that the movies did. And I thought they did that Klein did that here. He made this more about the relationships than just solving puzzles. You know, I thought that was a, a, an improvement. I, I get that. And I, and I, and I see it in the movie, you know, clearly like I, understand why they chose it but also like it's one of the things i like about the first book is that <laughs> i know all that stuff and so the challenges themselves appeal to me mm-hmm. because i know some of the answers and you know what i'm saying yeah sure so that's part of it for me yeah yeah hey, i'm still proud of the fact that i immediately got the three as a magic number i didn't get any right. of the others really but um but um when he when it was the 
faith, hope, charity backwards. I'm like, oh, I remember Schoolhouse Rock. That's the three is a magic number. And when it actually was, I just like did cartwheels because I'm like, at least I figured one of these things out. <laughs> but um, um, okay, so the overall structure we talked about a little bit the threat of the artificial we haven't really talked about the the oni the the oasis neural interface and the 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 artificial intelligences that develop in there what do you think about that whole part of the story so again the the threat in this book is is artificial intelligence right yeah and the the reason it's a threat is because they developed a basically a direct neural interface the oni thing you basically scans your brain and copies your brain into the network, which everybody's like, yeah, I'll do that. Um, and then <laughs> except uh, Artemis. Well, and you have like all that going on and basically like unlimited computing capacity mm-hmm. that this company has at their disposal. And they, people are already experimenting with AI. Like you could see this coming a hundred miles away. I felt like yeah. that this was going to be the problem. It wasn't going to be human beings. It's going to be the ghost in the machine kind of. So, um, and it turns out it's it's Halliday's ghost that didn't delete himself at the end of the first book. He's back and he's not happy. Uh, and because of the neural interface thing, the danger to human beings is more real. Um, you know, I I liked the you know kind of the haptic interface stuff that he thought about it in the first book and the different levels of that and the different ways people would use it. And I like this one too. And I like, you know, there's the way the ONI works, the ability to, you know, the fact that it has a, a like a limiting limit limit on it that you can't go longer than 12 hours. You yeah. have these health problems, severe mm-hmm. health problems and then uh, stuff. And, and so there's this kind of countdown and all these safety controls to make sure people don't do that. Mm-hmm. But then also the, some of this kind of things they did with it where, they use the ONI and you had a much more sensory kind of experience than you did using the haptic stuff. And they talk about that a lot of different uh, events, but also like the ability to be in the Oasis using the ONI and then like possess a robot in the real world mm. and control it. And so they did that multiple times. And so that's, you know, I, I've seen that in other science fiction things, and it, I, I thought they used it well in this book and, and made some sense uh, how it tied into the, o, the O&I thing. Yeah. So what, what did you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think my favorite thing about it was that Artemis didn't like it from the, from the start. And the, since the whole thing is first person from Wade, you know, our, what he's telling us and what he's making us kind of, or at least what he's trying to get us to feel is, stop being a stick in the mud, Artie. Everybody else likes it. And then by the end of the book, you're like, man, she was right. <laughs> and he realizes it, you know. So I thought that was pretty cool that that he kind of, you know. See, again, I, I like that Klein makes Wade not the perfect hero. He's kind of, he's not the villain, but he's certainly like complicit in the crime, you know, at, by accident. But he his his bad judgment, Wade's bad judgment enables a lot of this to happen. And if... And if Samantha had won the contest and been in charge, it never would have happened because she never would have opened up the the whole, you know, turned the thing on, you know. She just said, nope, bad idea, seal this up, pour the concrete over it like a nuclear reactor, and we're never going in there again. So I like that. I like that, that Samantha is not the main character, and yet she had more sense about it, which, again, haters... Take note, Wade's not supposed to be the perfect character. He makes mistakes, and and she she kind of got that. Um, let's see. We I, I wanted talking about the AI 
you know, in the movie, we got a we got a sort of a AI Halliday, both as a little kid and as an old guy, older guy. And remember, Wade asks him, "Are you are you still alive?" No. Well, what are you? And he just kind of smiles and goes out the door. So we've gotten several different versions of Halliday now, right? We had the living Halliday in the first book and in the first movie. We had the Halliday that was in the sec in the movie that was kind of like a benevolent AI. And now we get this sort of satanic, evil Halliday. And, you know, I've had friends ask me, well, what did you think about what they did with Halliday? I didn't like how they changed his character. I don't think this was the same character. I think that this is like what happens when you... I think Halliday was the seed of this character, the you know the beginning of him. But this is again, this book is a lot about how power corrupts and the temptation of power. And just as Wade was tempted to go out and zap all of his people that insulted him on the internet, this artificial intelligence starts out as a benevolent version of of Halliday, but tempted with global power, he kind of becomes a monomaniacal, uh, megalomaniacal uh, villain, you know. That's fair. I mean, that makes sense. I and, and he doesn't want to, I mean, everybody fears being killed or dying. He doesn't want to die. And mm-hmm. He doesn't want Wade to ever push the button right. to, to quit shut the thing down because that would end him. But I do think it's fair to say that the book did change my perception of James Halliday, the real James Halliday, yes. not the AI. Yes, that's true. That's true. Go ahead. Because, you know, in the first book, he is seen as a benevolent character, kind of this dorky mm-hmm. guy who was brilliant and did all this stuff. And he was so socially awkward, you know, that he loved this one woman who uh, ended up marrying his best friend, right? Yeah. And it tormented him. And so you see that in the first book, but in this book you see like that he could never let it go and that he always loved her and that he, you know, uh, and it wasn't always pretty kind of his um, perception of her and Og together and that kind of stuff. And that he, the whole ONI thing was, I think a lot of it was a way to, capture a copy of her brain basically Mm -hmm. so that he could spend time with a virtual version of her. Yeah. Um, and he, and then he did that to her without her consent. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, uh, another thing where when it happened, I was like, I have a lot less respect for James Halliday, the real, the person from the first book than I did in the first book. So no, no doubt, no doubt. I, you know, and again, I think I keep looking at this, taking a step back and looking at Klein. I feel like, when when Klein wrote the first book, he wasn't that concerned with Halliday other than just being the Willy Wonka, you know? Mm, yes. I think that when he wrote, when he co-wrote the script of the movie, which was much more focused on Halliday than the first book was. The movie's much more about Halliday than the book. Yes. I think that that must have made Klein have to think a little bit more about that character and say, what would he have been like, right? What would have become of James Halliday if he'd been in the... Because, you know, in the movie, he's having to write those scenes where they go out on a date and then Og is asking, where's the juice? Tell me what happened, you know. We just watched the movie, you know. And, you know, it, and they're fighting and everything and they're splitting up and, and their friendship ending and all. The movie was all about that relationship. And I think that it made Klein have to think about that relationship more and realize, you know, he wouldn't have just gone, oh, well, and walked off into the sunset. If he had that much money and power, he might have tried to do something 
that to him would have seemed like a great idea because like Wade, he was socially, you know, backwards, but to the rest of the humanity would seem pretty sinister. And I think that, again, there are a lot of really good parallels here that Klein draws between Wade and Halliday. I think that Wade realizes, because, again, in the movie, that's the, I, I swear, I think that writing that script of the movie changed how Klein saw these characters in this story and, and informed a lot of how he wrote this book. I don't think you'd have this book without the movie. I don't. Because I think that when Klein wrote that movie script along with Zach Penn, and he made it all about that relationship between Og and Halliday and Kira, he had to rethink that relationship much more deeply than he did in the first book. And it, and it, and it also led him to think Wade is going down the exact same path that Halliday did. Right, He's in love with a woman that can't deal with his crap, and he's there running this big company basically alone. And he's you know a kid that grew up alone yeah. in video games and is doesn't have good social skills, relationship skills, and you know as you know uh, <laughs> you know not good at that, not good at human well, uh, interpersonal relationships. Well, remember at the end of the movie, Wade looks at at Samantha and says, "I'm not Halliday," and kisses her. That was like the key moment of his transformation as a character in the movie is that Halliday wouldn't kiss Kira. Yes. And he says, I'm not Halliday, and he kisses her. And in the book, he's still being Halliday in this book. He's Even though he kissed her, he regressed. He's, he's regressed, right? He started a fight yes. with her, yes. let her get away. The only difference is... The only difference is she doesn't go off and marry H. <laughs> that's the main <laughs> that's the main difference between Halliday and Wade is Wade there is able go. to Wade is able to grow and get her back, whereas Halliday lost her forever. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. I think there's that's really interesting, and that's not something until we had this conversation, I hadn't thought that all the way through. So this is very interesting, very useful. Um uh, let's see, and we talked about Wade and Samantha and the ticking time clock and all that. Uh, what did you think about Kira being so important to this book? And we actually kind of halfway meet her at the end. I mean, I think it makes sense after the first book. You know, it's a triangle, and we got two. You know, two points of it in the first book. Yeah. Right. It's James, Og, Kira, and we got two. So, you know, sides of it in the first book, but we didn't get the third point of the triangle. We get the third point in this book, and so mm-hmm. it gives you a better picture of all three of them. Yeah. Uh, it really is their story as much as it is the high fives and it's kind of good, yes. but we just get theirs in pieces. Yeah. That's a good point. It would be, you know, if he ever didn't want to write like ready player three or whatever you would call it, I would love to see, um, the, the, the first that early, like the prequel. And I'm not sure whose point of view I would want it to be from because all three of them would have completely different stories to tell about the same events, which is kind of what we see in these two books, you know, is that they each had yeah. a different perspective on it. Well, Halliday's wouldn't be very interesting, I don't think, but uh, no. <laughs> I guess no, I think a prequel from the Og perspective would be good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, did you have anything to note about the real world versus inside the simulation? The inside the simulation was getting pretty real there by by the time of this book. It was, but I mean, I just think like the, you know, in terms of the plot stuff, you know, the kidnapping people in danger, all that mm. kind of stuff in the real world versus the kind of the danger of the simulation too, and, and how they were dealing with both of those things. I mean, I think one of the, 
you know, the most dramatic scene in the whole book to me probably is when, is when uh, Samantha's plane gets shot down. Oh yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I think just, and that was a real world thing and not a, in the simulation thing. And so I think those kind of things, um, but they, again, like she was in the simulation in the airplane when the airplane got attacked and then had to log out and, and bail out of the plane, that kind of thing. So I just think, um, you know, that kind of stuff was interesting. Uh, kind of the, the stresses inside and outside. So. I, I like that. Um, she, you know, well, I think that the coolest, the coolest part of the first book, and this is saying something because there's so many cool parts was the, um, was when Wade let himself get captured by IOI. Yes. And I taken agree. inside there as a, as a servant or whatever you call it, a indentured servant. Yeah. That was cool. And, in the movie, they gave that whole bit basically to Samantha, which again I thought was fine because she needed more to do, and Wade already had plenty to do, so it gave her something more to do, and that was great, and she was good at it. I thought it was interesting that she's the one that goes down in the airplane this time. I think if there hadn't been a movie, and if there had not been any feedback about all that, it might have been Wade jumping out of the airplane, kind of like he was, you know, jumping out of the way of his of his stack that fell down in the in the first book. Yeah. So I think that. Again, I just see a lot of growth on the part of Klein at letting other characters do stuff besides his main character, and that was cool. What did you think about the low five? I, I kind of was intrigued. Oh, well, I was intrigued, and I wanted more. Yeah. Like you talked about different parts you wanted more. I wanted more low five. And honestly, the part of the movie, the part of the book, one of the parts of the book that I'm the maddest about is when Wade basically, you know, doesn't involve them. Yeah. You know, he sends them off on this side quest and I'm mm. like, they found the first clue. You didn't. What? Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff at stake. What if you blow this and you could have <laughs> used these really cool, useful people? You know, I so I think it would have been interesting for like the, his group to fail at the low five to succeed on something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, um, so yeah. I don't know. I That part I thought was cool. I like the idea that, you know, that Wade and his high five compatriots are, are kind of a lot of people don't like them anymore. Yeah. They've become too corporate and all that. Like I get that hundred percent. I total, I, I, I really relate, you know, to that idea that, um, mm-hmm. that they were sellouts and all that. And so the idea that there were some people that still genuinely like them and respected yes. them and, uh, that they teamed up with them, I thought was a cool idea. So kind of the younger, mirror image of them well that's what you do right you you throw rocks and mud at the the good guys and say oh everybody hates them now everybody hates them and then you say oh wait here's these people that actually still like them and respect them and you're like oh immediately we like them for liking the characters we like i mean they were we we, we were always going to like the low five because they were they were the way we we remember the high five at the beginning they were still humble and hungry and young and yeah, we wanted more of that. Just like it's and here's the thing, you know the old the the old deal with uh, with story structure is if you're going to show a gun in Act One, you got to fire it by Act Three or it's it, there's that's the gist of it. It's <laughs> Chekhov's gun or whatever you call it. Yeah. And um and everything that gets mentioned in most stories and shows and movies and stuff like that eventually becomes important later. Well, there's a scene where we meet the leader of the low five and, and she is important later and that's good. But there's a scene where we meet the rest of them and we never see them again. It's like he yeah. takes the time to describe what they look like and what their names are, and what they sound like. 
And then we never see him again. So that was, yeah, that was disappointing because I kept thinking, if you went to the trouble of actually introducing us visually, right, to all of them, surely we're going to see him again. And you really don't. I agree. Yeah. So maybe in the third book, they'll probably do more if there's a third book or something. Or if there's a movie, they might. You know what? If there's a movie, we would actually see them and that would be enough. Because honestly, I mean, Daito and Sho in the movie... You know, we see them do some cool things, but they don't really have to be in there. You know, they're not as integral as they. Isn't it weird? Daito and Sho in the movie are in the movie more, yet are less important. Whereas Daito and Shoto in the book are in the book a lot less, yet they're more important to the story. They make stuff happen, yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting, huh? I like the movie versions way more, but they're not nearly as consequential. They're just cute. They're nice kids. You just you kind of want to hug them, you know. Ninjas don't yeah. hug. <laughs> I love them to death, but they don't really do anything. So anyway, um, all right. So we got to talk about the quests uh, before we wrap up here in a minute. You know, in the in the first book, obviously, you got three big separate quests with stuff around it. You know, in this one, we get basically three main quests. All right, we get Shermer, Illinois, which is the um, the um, what's his name? The director. The plot revolves around Pretty in Pink. Well, but it's all all the movies by that director located in that one place. Yeah, and and that's see. Um, don't tell me I'm not thinking of his. I'm blanking out on his name. Keep, keep going. I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, John Hughes. Yeah, John Hughes. Um, the reason that that's a big deal around here is I was always a fan of the John Hughes movies to a degree. But I now live in Illinois, okay? And I've been to Chicago several times. And my, my daughter and I have watched several of the John Hughes movies together now. And I told her the day, I said, you didn't know that when we, <laughs> you didn't know that when we watched Pretty in Pink a few months ago, we were doing homework, did you? <laughs> she thought that was pretty funny. But I said, aren't you glad we did now? Because you would have known what was going on in that part of the book. So, yeah, you have the John Hughes, Shermer, Illinois part, which I thought makes perfect sense. It was cool. You have the afterworld, which is all about Prince, kind of in the way that you had the Rush stuff in the first mm-hmm. book. And then who saw First Age of Middle Earth coming? Who who had that on their Ready Player Two bingo card? Uh, you know, First Age? First Age? Really? I mean, dang, <laughs> that's that's a deep Again, cut. I, I I read the Silmarillion. I read a you know <laughs> that's a deep uh, cut though, John. Tales and- it's the deep cut, but again, I I also liked how these other worlds. Wade wasn't the expert, right? Yeah, he had to depend on the other team members to get him through these other places. That's good. Yeah, yeah, because H knew more about Prince, and who knew more about? I don't even remember who knew more about the first age. Was it Sam? Samantha. Samantha. Yeah. And here's the funny thing: if you guys out there are all like, "Oh, we're going to see more of that on the Amazon, you know, Middle Earth TV show coming out soon," no, you're not, because. <laughs> They have the rights to the Second Age, and the Second Age is basically Numenor and Sauron the first time. Basically, the Second Age that we're going to get on the TV show starts out with the island where Aragorn's ancient people lived. It's kind of like Atlantis, and it basically runs right up to the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring where they're having the big battle at the volcano the first time. So that's pretty much what you're going to get in the Amazon show. You're not going to get any Morgoth. You're not going to get the big wolf. 
None of that stuff. And you're also not going to get Lord not, of the Rings because that's third age. Not Baron and Luthien. No, no. This is the fir- This is back in the time of legends when everybody was basically a god, it seemed like, and uh, including the humans. And so, you know, lived for many, many. That's why Aragorn, you know, is still living very long in, in the third age is he's the last of this crowd that were that lived to be hundreds of years old, you know. Um, so what did you think about those quests, your favorite parts, least favorite parts, just in general about those three quests? Um, I mean, I enjoyed it again. I thought the Shermer Illinois stuff, thought there was some funny stuff in there with, <laughs> from all those different movies. I mean, um, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah, Robert Downey Jr. And, and the weird science people and, and yeah. all that stuff. And there, again, they, there was house parties. It was a prom. There was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they went in the high school and up and down the halls of the high school. And so all of that stuff was, you know, I thought was entertaining. Um, I I didn't love the print stuff as much. I mean, again, I appreciate Prince's music and I've listened to all of it. um, Kind of went on a long time, didn't it? It went on a long time. And honestly, like I knew some of that stuff, but I did, there was some of it that I'm like, I don't know what this is a reference to. Yeah. Um, And so that, you know, and and I'm sure that's how other people felt in the first book or in other parts of this book. I I like the first Age of Midor stuff because I like the song really in Unfinished Tales. And I was all in for that part. I thought it was cool. And I thought the fact that they thought they were just going to walk in the door and and do it was really (laughs) funny and stupid. So it was great. um, uh, You know, I so I, I appreciated that part. You know, I think it's neat that he did a he did a movies part, he did a music part, and he did like a book part. So he really yes. did kind of try to give everybody at least something that they'd be a little closer to there. It's not like three music things, you know, or three video games. In fact, none of them are video game things. And I want to thank him for that because we know he loves video games more than anything. And there was a lot of, the, the first book was very video game heavy. So I kind of appreciate it because I'm not a big video game guy. I never have been. I kind of appreciated not having to know, you know, the deep lore of Double Dragon or something this time. I, I know way more about the first age of Middle Earth and Shermer, Illinois, and Prince than I do like some, you know, midway console game from 1983 or something. I just, I, this was great. I, I liked it better. And yeah, the Prince stuff. It's a great idea, right? Oh, seven, you watch them fall. You got seven princes, and each one is a different identity of prince. And that's a great idea. If that had been about 30 pages long, that would have been fine. But it felt like it went on for 130 pages. I was just so done. I agree. Yeah, I was so done with. Now, the one part that I did really appreciate was when he has to go to the little shop and get a raspberry beret, and he has to go in through the outdoor and he has to hang around until the guy tells him he was doing something close to nothing. He didn't like his looks because he was a bit too leisurely. Yes. Yes. I mean, just, the, that part that part was good because it was short. It was very concise, and it was from one song that everybody knows, and it was short. Yeah, but the battle just went on. I, I, I kind of appreciated Morris Day in the time, but again, I don't need fifty pages of Morris Day with his mirror zapping <laughs> princes. Yeah, I agree. A little much. Okay. Any other the any other the challenge stuff uh, that 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 you remember that was that was cool or not so cool? I mean, those were the three main. I, ones. I appreciated. I did appreciate in the Prince world that if you said anything bad about him, you got struck by a person. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing I have nothing but good things to say about Prince. Then I would not get blown up. But I like how H immediately knows to get away from you when you say something bad about <laughs> Prince because. 
H knew she knew what was going to happen. That was hilarious. Um, we got Sorrento back, and it was kind of weird. I mean, let's be honest. Out of all the characters that are like artificial intelligences and are artificial, Sorrento, an actual human being, was the most cartoony. I, I just thought this Sorrento he, was completely unbelievable. He was the cartoon villain. He escaped. He they help the AI helps him escape from prison, and he's immediately like, "I'm all in on whatever we could do to get Wade." Uh, yeah. So. He went from slimy corporate bad guy to like super villain. Yes. And I didn't I didn't buy it. I thought he was more like he was more like an AI than the actual AI was, honestly. Okay, he was a cartoon evil yeah. bad guy. Yeah. Um and we talked about Wade and Samantha. I, I did like that they had trouble in their relationship. I thought that made sense. I mean, it's just like look, if you give Wade the the robes of An- of Anorak the whole book, he never is challenged. And if he has a perfect relationship with his girlfriend, he's never challenged. So you have to take everything away from him and strip him down and make him relearn all of his lessons. That's the point of the story. And I thought that that made sense. And, and again, it's, 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 you, it's disappointing because you're like, oh, I wanted them to live happily ever after. Well, we're in the second story now. If they live happily ever after, that's a boring story. So stories about conflict and things going wrong and having to fix things and save things. And so, you know, you hate that they're not getting along. You want them to to be happy. I mean, God, I love the ending of the movie because it seems like they are going to live happily ever after there, but it, you know, it, it, it made sense. So, um, the other thing I was going to ask you here, the spaceship, again, when you see the spaceship mentioned so prominently at the beginning of the book, didn't you just know something was going to happen with that spaceship? Oh, sure. And then, well, and again, not just spaceship, but a spaceship that had like a super Oasis. connected, con- Oasis connectivity and, <laughs> you know, storage and stuff. You're like, okay. We're yeah. setting this up. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, I thought it was going to set the thing where the, the evil AI took it and flew away. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. And I, I would have been okay with that as an ending. Yeah. hundred percent. I thought they're going to trap him on there. It's going to be like a Star Trek episode where they trap the evil, you know, computer virus thing in a, in a separate box and send the box into the sun or something. Yeah. I absolutely thought that. So the, I did not see the actual ending coming where it turns into this whole, like starting a new race of beings that are just like recordings, like come to life or whatever that, what did you think about all that? It was interesting. Um, I mean, I guess that, you know, the idea about what is life and, uh, but also, like, there was those on the spaceship, but there was embryos on the spaceship, too. So that part was a little weird to me. Yeah. Um, like, is. these AI things are going to raise the embryos? What are, we do- what are we doing here? So Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, uh, so but that was interesting. I mean, just the idea about kind of what is life and what is consciousness. And they, they could, but it, and then honestly, like, in terms of deep interstellar travel, it makes an enormous amount of sense. Right. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So, well, what, yeah, what did you think? I, absolutely. Because I mean, yeah, you just sh- let the computers that are never going to die basically run the ship and you don't actually have a human crew or passengers until you get there. So that sure, that makes perfect sense. It makes me wonder if in another book we'll be on another planet where they've, it's like, you know, it had to be a long time in the future, I guess, but you'd have like a whole new human civilization benevolently hopefully <laughs> overseen by their digital gods up on digital Mount Olympus, you know, telling them all the answers to everything that there's, a, I mean, James P. Hogan could have written a hell of a book out of that. I'll tell you right now, that would be, you know, mm-hmm. that sounds like a Hogan book right there. Um, but I, I wasn't expecting it out of, out of Ernest Klein, to be honest. So I guess when astronauts finally reach that planet in book seven, 
of this series, they'll find <laughs> a planet where it's a perfect paradise where the, the where the AI gods reign over a happy utopian society where everybody loves the 1980s. <laughs> yes, I was going to say where the gods walk around dressed in parachute pants. Exactly. Oh man, yeah. Oh boy, there we go. Um, so, oh, my last real question about this, then we can see if we want to kind of wrap it up. My last question is, didn't you think at some point the big red button was going to get pushed? Because I would have bet $100, especially when we found out that the way to kill the bad guy was to push the big red button. Yes. I'm like, okay, he's going to push the big red button. I, I did too, honestly. And then I was thinking about like they would have to redevelop their own mm-hmm. Oasis and set it up again. And how would it be different? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I thought they might go there. Well, I mean, you know, if the if the problem is fixing the Earth because they've played so much video game, basically that they've let the Earth go to crap, wouldn't part of the solution be getting rid of the video game? Ding, ding, ding. You you'd think it's like if everybody on Earth is addicted to cocaine, and you have a big button that makes all the cocaine go away. Don't you think at some point in the book you push the cocaine erasing button? But they don't. They still got the cocaine. I was like, well, okay. No, and, and, and they got like, give me more. That's yeah. what it was. Oh, they want the super cocaine. They got the crack flowing, no doubt. I know. I and 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 didn't this was interesting. Did you catch that Wade said he went on the Oasis for the last time? I did not catch that. Yes, yes, sir. Go back and look. When he goes in the Oasis to do something at the very end of the story, he says, and then I went into the Oasis for the last time. And I'm like, ooh. So I assume that means that like he and Samantha just kind of swear off of it to go live a normal human life and just don't. And and honestly, if you're weighed with a trillion dollars at this point, do you need the Oasis anymore? No. <laughs> Well, he needs it because he's offered around real people and it's easier for him to go interact with a bunch of NPCs. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He could just pay people to like take his crap and be nice though, you know? <laughs> just hire people to say you got that right. Whatever you want, Mr. Watts. Uh g- give me a, you know, five dozen strawberry shortcakes and absolutely that'll make you look great. It's very healthy, sir, you know. Just anything he wants, pretty much. He doesn't need the Oasis anymore. But yeah, you go back and look. I'm pretty sure he says he went into the Oasis for the last time. And I kept thinking, what are the ramifications of that? And if they ever do another book, he won't go in there. But if he went in there for the last time, could it also mean that he, it wasn't just his last time, it was everybody's last time. Oh, so maybe after this book. Yeah, after this book is over. I feel like if he's going to hit the button, it'll be in another book. I, I thought this was the one. I've, I've said all along that I thought that the, the third volume would be called Game Over. And it doesn't seem right to me now, except in the sense of if they're going to push the button. Because you could call it Game Over if the third book he pushes the button. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, who knows? Just idle speculation. Um, we already talked about a couple of things here that we were thinking about. Oh, should they make a movie out of this? Will they? I mean, again, will they is, will it make money? <laughs> So probably again, did the first movie made some money? First, so, first movie made about a half a billion, about five to six hundred million globally. But like eighty percent of that was worldwide. About twenty percent was in the U.S. It was not a big hit in the United States. It was a big hit in Asia, in Europe. Yeah. So again, I think I think they'll try and do it again because they because they see those numbers. I think if they do, it'll be a Jurassic Park kind of thing where Spielberg does not come back to do a sequel. 
I think you're Although right. maybe he did the second Jurassic Park. But generally, you know, he'll do the first movie when it's like a new thing. And then mm-hmm. when you're just trying to do more of it, he's like, no, I'm going to go do something else. And they'll bring in, you know, some other guy or girl to direct the second one, the third one. Yes. I And it wouldn't be as good, you know? I agree. So if they do make a second movie, you might as well go ahead and accept that it's not going to be as good. Not because the second book wasn't as good, although I don't think we like this one quite as much. But because usually the sequels to Spielberg movies done by other people just aren't as good. Is that fair? Yeah, very true. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's. You you ready to kind of rate it? I am. What did you? You can either take the one out of ten, one through ten, or you can go one through five stars, whichever you whichever gets closer to your ratings. What I'll I'll do one out of ten. Okay. Um, then I'll do again. That. I I want to step back and say again, like I love the first book. It's one of my favorite books. I could reread it again tomorrow. Any and any number. I've read it many times. I'll read it. Continue to read it many more times. Yep. Um, I like this book. I didn't like it as much as the first book because it's it's you know again I'll, I'll you know wait a few months, wait a year, read it again, and see how if I feel differently, um, and see if it's grown on me some. But some of it was just the newness and the creativity in the, in the first book that I really liked, um, and I how I felt like it really spoke to me. Um, and we've talked about that on other podcasts. And so I, that shapes how I feel about it. Um, you know, so again, this is a, me and my perception. Um, I think it's good. I don't think it's, you know, um, unbelievable, amazing, crazy. I think it's, it's, it's solid, entertaining, fun science fiction book. Um, and so, I mean, but like to me, like on a scale of one to 10, the first book was like a nine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, Giving you relative here. I would say this book is more like a six. I mean, I re- I liked it. I enjoyed it. I had a good time reading it. But again, I think for some of the reasons that we talked about, uh, you know, there were um, pieces of it that I didn't love as much. Um, and I think it also kind of lacked some of the you know, the first book. Everything was new, so um, so I think that's uh, that's that's my view of it. I enjoyed it. I'm going to read it again. Um, if they make a movie, I'll be there. Um, but I didn't like it as much as the first one. So now you go. I 100% agree. I would give the first book a nine, 9.5, pretty close to 10 in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking too, it's a six right now. It's a six for me right now. It's, 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 it's on the upper half. You know, it's not like if it was like a four, it would be more bad than good. I think it's more good than bad. And it's, and there's not a lot of bad. It's just it was a very difficult book. I'm sure it was a difficult book for him to write. It took him nine years, but difficult. It just it it had an almost impossible task to accomplish. And I I think that it's a book that when I immediately read it, I said there's very little chance I'm going to read this again soon. Whereas I could read like you said, I could read Ready Player One over and over and over, and I have very little chance I'm going to read this one again soon. But I think this book will benefit from time. I think that over time, as we, just like with the movie, when you compare everything to that first book, it takes a while to get used to the other thing, I think. And so I think that once some time has passed and this book settles into my memory as a, as a thing, right, and not just as a reflection of the first one, I'll like it better. I, I think it's going to grow on me. It's never going to be my favorite more than the first one or the movie even. But I, th- I think I'm going to like it better in the future than I like it now just because that happened with the movie and just because it'll, it just needs some time to kind of 
take root and come into its own as its own thing and not a comparison. It, everything, when you compare it to the classic original, you know, you know, when, when, when Empire Strikes Back first came out, people are like, well, it's not as good as Star Wars, but it's pretty good. And then, uh, you know, within a couple of years, people are like, oh, it's as good as Star Wars. Then within a couple of years, people got insane and said it's better than Star Wars, which I think is nuts. But, you know, it just takes a while for these newer things to kind of stand on their own. So, yeah, I'm giving it a six for now, but I imagine it could, it could grow into like a seven, seven and a half. I don't think it'll probably ever go higher than that. And middle, again, if, it's, if this is the middle of a trilogy, and I don't know if it is or not, but if it is, the middle chapters are always the most awkward anyway, you know? It's fair. Very yeah. fair. Okay, any final thoughts about Ready Player Two? No, again, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I'm happy. You know, again, I didn't think we needed a sequel, but I enjoyed reading it. Um, I appreciated more focus on Kira, and I thought there was a good section in there where they you know, talked about women development of video games. I thought it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciated that part. So, I, you know, um, I guess the other thing I think is like a, I thought there were a lot of ideas in the first one that I thought were very original. And I think there's a lot of things in this one that I've seen other places that he kind of pulled together to to tie the story together. So that's one of my other things about it. But again, I enjoy the world and the characters and uh, look forward to seeing where it goes from here. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good point, too, I'll close on, is that he did get a lot of criticism, but it was interesting in the in the first couple of years after the book came out, it just won awards. It didn't get criticism. It's as as the you know if our last one of the things our previous decade that's closing out this year will be remembered for is a lot of social change, a lot of rethinking of men and women, and a rethinking of society and all. And whether you approve of that or don't approve of that is not my point. It's that there has been a lot of a lot of change in that, and and. I think that Klein started getting criticized about the middle point of the last decade going forward uh, for the Ready Player One that it wasn't. It, he was criticized that Ready Player One didn't didn't read like it was written in 2020 when he wrote it in like 2010. So I thought yeah. that was unfair. It's like getting mad at a James Bond movie from 1962 for how he treats women. Well, it's from 1962. Yeah. What do you want? So I thought he did learn a lot of lessons, and I thought he clearly made an effort. Now, you can agree or disagree whether he succeeded, but I felt like he made a good-faith effort in this book to be more sensitive to certain things. And again, you may, you may be happy about that. You may think that's stupid. I don't care. I'm just saying I thought that it seemed like he was trying to address some of the things that were said about the first book, and I thought that that was fine of him to do that. I agree. All right. Well, that's cool. I had a lot of fun with this book. I had a lot of fun talking to you about it. I think I've learned some more about it that I didn't know before we talked. So this was very useful. Hopefully our listeners did too. All right. So I think the rocket's going to get on out of here for this episode. We're going to have a special episode coming up in a couple of days on this same network where I have a conversation with Mira, my daughter, who, like I said, has read the book several times, who's watched the movie several times and read this book the same time I was reading it. And she has some good insights as well, and I think you'll enjoy that too. So look for that episode coming up soon. I'm also going to have an episode where I talk to a friend of mine from way back in high school who's who's a big fan of these things. And I thought he has some really interesting insights that you'll enjoy. So... Uh, you guys will get kind of a week of Ready Player Two talk, and I think we kicked it off really well tonight with this one. John, I appreciate you coming on, man, and we'll see you later. Thanks a lot, man. It was fun. And as always, we have to thank our great patrons who keep all the shows on the White Rocket Entertainment Network going. That includes shows like the White Rocket Podcast that you're listening to now, but also AU Wishbone and Avengers Assemble, Open Wheel Racing Show with Alan, 
and of course on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, among others. Here are the folks that that currently keep our programs going. You can join their ranks for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, Plexico.net, my main website. You'll find links to all of our shows, everything else we do there, and also a button that you can click to become a patron and, and join the ranks of these fine people. We have to thank Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, Christopher Burleson, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, Chris Usher, Gary Grant, Logan Chilton, Phil Amthor, Richard Stevens, Steve Trawick, Susan Trawick, Tom Anderson, Willie Carden, Ann Kangian, A.U. Falling Up, Ben Bloodworth, Clay Henson, Dan Thompson, Daniel Odom, David Evers, David Hegler, Emmanuel Seaman, George Gaston, Jacob and Robin Fleming, James Greenwell, Joel Beckham, John Otsuki, Catherine England, Kevin Smith, Mickey B, Phil Davis, Preston Settle, Reynolds Wolf, Rich Reimer, Steve Harlan, Timothy, WDE Richie, Wes Atkinson, William Morgan, Wilson Beard, Winston Body, Alex Wynn, Blake Heron, Boris the Tiger, Cato the Barner, Chris Hilton, Chris Thrash, Colby Butler, as well as Danny Flack, Darius Benton, David Simpson, Di Bama, Earl Ricks, Eric Mahan, Hugh Anderson, Josh Teal, Kevin Kenoy, Kevin Mahan, Lane Middleton, Melissa Blackstone, Mike Finley, Algorithm, Papa Todd, Randall Walker, Rob Morgan, Ross, Russell Milling, Shannon Butson, Sarah Hines, Shane Bailey, Snow Dog, Stephen Houston, Tim Pittman, Todd Gray, Tony Perry, Auburn Elvis, Ben Amos, Brandon Sisson, Brandon Smith, Chris Como, Como, uh, Chris Como, Darren Pyle, David Smiley, Donnie Reynolds, Ivor Evans, James Taylor, Jason Albrecht, John Stubbs, John Zavachin, Joey Miller, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Lawrence Kane, Mark Squire, Matthew Flowers, Mick Vigicana, Nicholas Craig, Patrick Williams, and Paul Bankson, as well as Robert Drain, Robert O. Sammons, Russell Souther, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, that's the truth, Ruth, Spanky, Stephen Thompson, Trevor Johnson, Kenneth Brent Rains, Brent Rumble, and Chris, along with our one-time and anonymous donors. Thank you so much for supporting our show. Go to www.plexico.net, or you can just go to patreon.com and search for Van Plexico or White Rocket. It all leads you to the same place. And that is, of course, uh, being able to support all of our fine shows. We will see you guys down the road. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.